Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. And uh, we'll consider, continue our series entitled Newness of Life. And this morning, uh, we will be looking at verses 15 through 19. 15 through 19. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, uh, you'll find our passage on page 943. 943. I'll begin uh, reading for us as we've been working through this series. Uh, We've been going through chapter 6, and so I'll begin reading for us in verse 1, and I'll read through to verse 19, and then we'll focus our attention this morning on verses 15 to 19. This is God's Word. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Amen. Let's pray, okay? Father, we thank you uh, for your word, and Lord, uh, just rejoice in these glorious gospel truths that you have revealed to us in Romans chapter 6. Lord, we thank you that we do not have to be enslaved to sin, but through Christ we can know and experience real freedom. And Lord, I pray that even through your word now and by the power of your spirit, that that freedom uh, 
would be extended in this place, that, Lord, many would know afresh and anew uh, the freedom that is ours in Christ. Lord, I pray that chains of sin and bondage to sin would be broken. And, Lord, we pray that we would walk in the power that is ours in Christ. And it's in His name we pray. Amen. Well, over the last several weeks, as we've been working through Romans chapter 6, we've been thinking about the Christian's union with Christ. And it was, in fact, this truth that led to the conversion of George Whitfield, the famous Christian evangelist of the 18th century. Uh, Whitfield was from England, but actually he preached here in the state of Georgia uh, prior to the founding of our nation. And Whitfield, as a young man, um, attended Oxford University, and he was, at the time, very religious, but he was unconverted. And then he came across this book entitled, The Life of God in the Soul of Man. And later on in his life, Whitfield reflects back on that experience of reading that book. And I want you to listen to Whitfield's description of reading that book. He writes, quote, God showed me that I must be born again or be damned. I learned that a man may go to church, say his prayers, receive the sacrament, and yet not be a Christian. How did my heart rise and shudder? I thus addressed the God of heaven and earth, Lord, if I am not a Christian, or if I am not a real one, for Jesus Christ's sake, show me what Christianity is that I may not be damned at last. God soon showed me, for in reading a few lines further, that true religion is a union of the soul with God and Christ formed within us, a ray of divine light was instantly darted in upon my soul, and from that moment, but not till then, did I know that I must become a new creature. End of quote. You see, it was through the reading this book that Whitfield came to realize that to be a Christian is more than the performance of religious practices and duties. To be a Christian is to be united to Christ by faith so that He dwells in us and we dwell in Him. In other words, the life of God in the soul of man. That's what it means to be a Christian. It means to be in Christ and for Christ to be in us. The life of God in the soul of man. And it's so important for us to understand this truth or we will misunderstand what it means to be a Christian. For example, some wrongly conclude that if we are saved by grace alone through faith in Jesus Christ, then grace liberates us to sin then we can sin freely because, of course, we'll be forgiven. But Paul shows us here in Romans chapter 6 that if we truly understand union with Christ, if we realize what union with Christ really is, we will see that union with Christ does not provide us with an excuse to sin. Far from it, union with Christ is the foundation upon which we experience victory over sin and deliverance from the bondage of sin. This, in fact, is the issue that the Apostle Paul is addressing in Romans chapter 6. In our text this morning, in verse 15, Paul actually returns 
to the initial question he asked in this chapter in verse 1. So let's go back first of all to verse 1 and see how Paul opens the chapter. In verse 1, Paul opens the chapter with this question. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You see, some were rejecting Paul's gospel because they said that the logic of Paul's gospel leads to more sin. If we are saved by grace, and that grace is free, and it is abounding, then why don't we just sin more so that grace will abound more? And Paul's response, you see it there in verse 2, by no means. In fact, Paul will go on to explain that if we truly understand the nature of God's grace we will realize that this is an impossibility to consider such a thing. Paul goes on then in the following verses to remind us of our baptism and to remind us of our union with Christ, to demonstrate that the grace of God not only saves us from the guilt and the penalty of sin, but the grace of God saves us from the power of sin. Now in verse 15, he returns to this same question. Look there in verse 15. What then... Are we to sin because we are no longer under law, but under grace? Now, this question is very similar. And this question here in verse 15 actually flows out of verse 14. So if you look there in chapter 6, verse 14, we considered this verse last week. Paul there says, For sin will have no dominion over you, here it is, since you are not under law, but under grace. So that's, that's the statement that Paul made last week. We are not under law, but we're under grace. And so then, naturally, the question then comes, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law, but under grace? You see, some had assumed that not being under law and being under grace would not lead to less sin, but it would lead to more sin. That if we're not under law, that is, we're not saved by the law, we're not saved by the good things that we do, rather we're saved by grace, then that means we're free to sin. But Paul's response, you see it again here in chapter 6, verse 15, may genoito, by no means. Now as we saw last week, what Paul means when he says we're not under law, but we're under grace is that the time of Moses, the time of being under law, was a time that was predominantly characterized by the reign of sin. Of course, God still preserved a remnant for Himself, a people who believed and trusted in Him. And there were exceptions, like Joshua and David and the prophets. But on the whole, when we look at the history of God's people under the law during this era or this period... It was marked by unbelief and idolatry and unfaithfulness. But now with the coming of Christ and His redemptive work, we are in a new era. We are in a new age. We have been given a new covenant. The law of God now is written on our hearts. We are dead to sin. We are alive to God in Christ Jesus. And we are empowered now by the Spirit of God to walk in newness of life. And Paul says this is all not the work of the law, but rather it is the work of grace. And so listen, the freedom, this is what Paul is saying, the freedom from being under the law does not mean freedom to sin. Rather, freedom from being under the law means freedom from the reign of sin. 
It means freedom to submit ourselves to a new master. It means freedom to be slaves to God. It means freedom to obey God and to live a life of righteousness. Under the law, it was marked by the reign of sin. But under grace, we've been set free to be slaves to God and to walk and live in obedience. Now, last week, in verses 11 through 14, as Paul is fleshing out some of these truths, he uses military image, imagery, to describe our battle against sin. So if you look there in verses 12 through 14, you'll see in verse 12 he says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. In verse 13 he says, Do not present your members to sin as instruments. Actually that word instruments we said could be translated weapons. Do not present your members to sin as weapons for unrighteousness, but present your members to God as weapons for righteousness. So he's using military imagery here. But now in our verses this morning, Paul transitions from, military, from a military image to the image of slavery. In fact, this slavery metaphor dominates this section in Romans chapter 6. Actually, in the verses that I just read for you, verses 15 and 19 in particular, slavery is referred to six times. And so, in the rest of our time together this morning, what I want us to do is consider five characteristics of spiritual slavery. Five characteristics of spiritual slavery. Now, notice, first of all, that slavery is an illustration of our spiritual lives. Slavery is an illustration of our spiritual lives. This is our first point. Now, I mentioned that slavery is referenced six times in just these five verses, but let's see it now, actually, in the text. So look there in verse 15. We read, What then are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Verse 16, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone, here it is, as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death or of obedience which leads to righteousness. Verse 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become, here it is again, slaves of righteousness. Verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you were once for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So there you see it. This idea, this concept of slavery dominates this section of Romans chapter 6. And the word here, slave or slavery, is the word doulos. It could be translated slave, it could be translated servant or bondservant. Now, scholars estimate that in the first century, the Roman population was about 50 million people. And about 10 to 20% of those 50 million people were identified as slaves. So about 5 to 10 million slaves in the ancient Roman Empire. And in the city of Rome in particular, it is estimated that as many as one-third of the population we're slaves, so one in every three persons. And so the church in Rome that Paul is writing to here 
is very familiar with the institution of slavery. And of course, Paul here is using slavery as a metaphor to illustrate the spiritual condition of humanity. And this conceptual link between slavery and our spiritual condition did not originate with the Apostle Paul. Actually, John made reference to it earlier this morning. Jesus spoke this way about our spiritual condition well before the Apostle Paul did. So in John chapter 8, verses 31 to 36, we read, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And the Jews answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Now, one of the things that's been pointed out here is that the response here is obviously, the response from the Jews to Jesus is obviously incorrect because the Jews, if you just look at their history, the Jewish people had been enslaved to the Egyptians, they had been enslaved to the Assyrians, they had been enslaved to the Babylonians. Even now, as they speak to Jesus, they are occupied by Rome. But Jesus doesn't, he doesn't address that. They're they're speaking at a physical level, but Jesus here is intending to make a spiritual point. Jesus answers them, and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So here's the Lord Jesus, and he is characterizing all of humanity, spiritually speaking, as either slaves of sin or set free by the Son. All of humanity falls under those two categories. You're either a slave to sin, or you've been set free by the Son. And so Paul here in our text in Romans chapter 6 is developing, he's elaborating on Jesus' teaching. And so this leads us to our second point. First point, slavery is an illustration of our spiritual lives. Second point, spiritual slavery is inevitable. Spiritual slavery is inevitable. Look there in verse 16. Paul says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. Now notice here, especially in the latter part of this verse, Paul here makes it clear that spiritual slavery is inevitable. We are either a slave to sin, or we are a slave to God. There is no middle ground. You are slaves, he says, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness. Now, here's, here's the question. How do you know, everyone needs to ask themselves this question this morning, how do you know whether you're a slave of sin or you're a slave to God? Well, we know based on the principle of obedience and devotion. You see it there at the beginning of verse 16. Do you not know? This is a general principle. 
Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Now, that word present there actually conveys the idea of putting someone or something at someone's disposal. It is the idea of devotion. And so by necessity, we will either present ourselves, we will devote ourselves to be willful slaves of sin or to be obedient servants of the Lord Jesus. And this reality is inescapable. The Lord Jesus said it this way in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Uh, Bob Dylan professed to be a Christian, a born-again Christian, for about a decade. And during that time, he produced three albums which came to be known as the Gospel Albums. And in my humble estimation, they are very good. Um, one of the songs that he wrote during that time, probably is one of the most well-known songs that he wrote during that time, is entitled, You Gotta Serve Somebody. So let me indulge you for a moment and share with you some Bob Dylan lyrical poetry. Okay? You may be a preacher with your spiritual pride. You may be a city councilman taking bribes on the side. You may be working in a barber shop. You may know how to cut hair. You may be somebody's mistress, maybe somebody's heir, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. You might like to wear cotton. You might like to wear silk. You might like to drink whiskey. might like to drink milk. You might like to eat caviar. You might like to eat bread. You might be sleeping on the floor, sleeping in a king-size bed, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. And Bob Dylan is exactly right because he got it from Jesus. He got it from the Apostle Paul. Every one of us will have to serve somebody. Our final allegiance, we may give our final ultimate allegiance to our work or to our wealth. We may give it to our family or our children. We may give it to our academics or our studies. We may give it to our desire for ease or comfort. We may give it to some habit or vice. We may give it to our desire for the praise of others. And any number of those things aren't necessarily wrong. But we may choose to give our final ultimate allegiance to any of those things or we may give our final and ultimate allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, but we cannot do both. That's not to say we will be perfect. Paul makes it clear, even especially as we get into Romans chapter 7, that there is a battle that takes place in the Christian's life. But here's the reality. Even when we struggle with sin, or maybe we should say especially when we struggle with sin, we will either take sin's side against God, or we will take God's side against our sin. And that, my friends, is often the indicator of who your master is. You can have two people who are struggling with sin in a very similar way, 
maybe the similar sin. And one of them is taking sin's side against God, and the other is taking God's side against sin. And there is a world of difference between the two. In fact, the difference is between who, the difference indicates who your master is. The difference indicates who you ultimately serve. But we have to serve somebody. Spiritual slavery is inevitable. Third, spiritual slavery involves obedience. Spiritual slavery involves obedience. So first of all, slavery is an illustration of our spiritual lives. Second, spiritual slavery is inevitable. And third, spiritual slavery involves obedience. Now, the first two points that we made here are general statements regarding the relationship between the metaphor of slavery and our spiritual condition. So, first point, the Bible uses slavery as an illustration of our spiritual condition. The second point, spiritual slavery is inevitable for everyone. We will either be slaves of sin or slaves of righteousness. But now as we come to verse 17 and 18, Paul turns to our Christian conversion. He's not just making general statements regarding the relationship between slavery and our spiritual condition. He's speaking of our Christian conversion. And the next two characteristics of slavery are related to this reality of us becoming Christians. Here we see that spiritual slavery involves obedience. Or we could say it this way, Christian conversion involves obedience to a new master. So notice this in verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin which leads to death, or of obedience which leads to righteousness? Now it's noteworthy that just in that one verse, Paul makes reference to obedience three times. It's also noteworthy that we might expect here in verse 16 for Paul to contrast being obedient slaves of sin with being obedient slaves of righteousness. That's in fact what he does in the rest of the paragraph. So if you go down to verse 17 and 18, you see there he contrasts, he says, we were once slaves of sin, and then in verse 18 we became slaves of righteousness. He does the same thing in verse 19. He says, you once presented yourself as, uh, your members as slaves to impurity, now present your members as slaves to righteousness. So he's, he's contrasting being slaves of sin, slaves of righteousness. But in verse 16, that's not what he does. In verse 16, he contrasts being obedient slaves of sin with being obedient slaves of what? Obedience. It's redundant. Obedient slaves of obedience. And Paul makes this subtle shift in order to stress the significance of obedience as it relates to knowing Christ as our Master, as our Lord. Notice then in verse 17 he goes on to say that the Roman Christians were once slaves of sin, but have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which they were committed. Now here Paul is obviously speaking of their conversion. He says that they were slaves of sin... But a transformation took place in their lives such that they became obedient from the heart so that in their heart there was a transfer of allegiance. And what did they come to obey? Notice, this may seem odd to us. They came to obey a standard of teaching. 
Or it could be translated a form of teaching, a form of doctrine. Which, and I wish we had more time to get into this, but we don't this morning. Which, I believe, refers here to the gospel. They became obedient to the gospel. To the good news of Jesus Christ. That is the standard of teaching, the form of doctrine that they received. Another way to say this is that the gospel comes with a command. And what is that command? The command of the gospel is to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to turn from our sins. It is a transfer of allegiance. I am serving this master. I am serving this Lord. I transfer. That's what repentance is. I transfer my allegiance from this master to this master. And I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior. And so the Roman Christians had heard this standard of teaching, this form of doctrine, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it came with a command, repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. And they obeyed from the heart and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting because this is not the only time in Romans that Paul talks of Christian conversion like this. In Romans chapter 1, so immediately when he opens the letter in verses 4 through 6, Paul writes, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we, he's speaking of himself and those who are ministering with him, have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. So he says, the whole purpose of my apostleship is to bring about the obedience of faith among the nations. Or in Romans chapter 15, verse 18, I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience. Or, Romans chapter 16, verses 25 and 26. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the command of the eternal God, to bring about the obedience of faith. There it is again. So we can say it this way. Saving faith. Saving faith involves obedience. Saving faith, we could say it this way, produces obedience. To trust in Christ is to obey Christ and to follow Him in humble submission. In this way, the Christian life is a life of slavery. So this idea that someone could say, I am in Christ and I am willingly and happily enslaved to sin. Paul would say, that's impossible. That's absurd. Or for someone to say, I'm trusting in God's free grace to deliver me from the guilt of sin. And I am willingly and joyfully enslaved to sin. Paul would say, Meganetoi, may it never be. That's like saying, I'm a cancer researcher. And I smoke four packs of cigarettes a day. That's like saying, I'm a triathlete, and I am adamantly opposed to strenuous physical exercise. That's like saying, I'm a neat freak, and my favorite pastime is hoarding. It's a contradiction. To trust in Christ, to be in Christ, is to willingly embrace a life of obedience to Christ. 
Spiritual slavery involves obedience. But notice this, our fourth point. Spiritual slavery and the God who enslaves. Spiritual slavery and the God who enslaves. Look there in verse 17 and 18. Paul says this. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. Now, we have considered what it means for the Christian to enslave themselves to another, right? To become obedient to the Lord Jesus. But now we see in these verses that perhaps a better way to describe the Christian life is that the Christian life means that we are enslaved by another. So in verse 17 and 18 we see that the Christians in Rome became obedient from their heart. And that and this was the part they played in their Christian conversion. They became obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching they received. They repented and they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's absolutely necessary. But also notice in these verses that Paul in verse 17 thanks God for that obedience. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. So presumably Paul is thanking God that they have become obedient from the heart because he is recognizing that that obedience and that faith has come to them from God. And as we go along and read the rest of the verses here and see what Paul says, it seems to confirm that this is the case. Notice that as Paul goes on to describe their conversion, all the verbs that Paul uses here are in the passive they all seem to indicate that the Christians in Rome are not so much acting as they are being acted upon. Now notice this in verse 17. But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. Now notice, this is a strange phrase. He goes on to say, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Now that last verb there that's translated in the ESV committed is actually a passive verb and the Roman Christians are the subject of the action. So, so let, me, let me say it this way. We would expect for the Apostle Paul to say here, you became obedient to the form of teaching that was committed to you. So that's the way we normally teach, talk about teaching or doctrine or tradition. It's committed to someone else to be passed down maybe from one generation to the next. So this gospel, this teaching, this doctrine was committed or it was passed down to you. But that's not what Paul says here. Paul says you became obedient to the form of teaching to which you were committed, you were delivered, you were, as one translation says, entrusted. So it's not that you, that the teaching was entrusted to you, but you were entrusted to the teaching. You were delivered over to the teaching. You were committed to the gospel. Delivered over to it. So the idea here is not so much that you are doing something with the teaching as much as it is doing something to you. You've been delivered over to it. And it's working and and doing something in your heart and in your life until you come to yield and submit to it and obey it. You were committed to it, entrusted to it. 
Rich Mullins, who's a late, uh, he's, he's dead now, but he was a Christian musician. And uh, he wrote a song. He put the Apostles' Creed to music. And it's a beautiful song. And the first verse reads, I believe in God the Father, Almighty Maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. So he's reciting the Apostles' Creed. And then he adds this chorus. And I believe what I believe is what makes me what I am. I did not make it. No, it is making me. It is the very truth of God and not the invention of any man. And that's how God makes us his servants. It did not make me, or I did not make it. No, it is making me. You see, it's not so much that, that God entrusts the gospel to us as much as we are entrusted to the gospel and then he allows it to work in our hearts and to work in our lives until we come to yield and obey it and we become his servants. So, we have been entrusted to this gospel. It's not something we have done, but we've been entrusted to it. And then notice in verse 18, and having been set free, again, this verb is passive, it's not active. You have been set free, not you set yourself free. And this word here is closely associated with the idea of redemption. Redemption is the idea of ransom or a payment for release. You see, we were enslaved to sin, but Christ paid the ransom for our freedom, and the price was his blood. He shed his blood to pay for our sins so that through faith in Jesus Christ, we might be set free, both from the guilt of sin so that we would be forgiven, and the power of sin so that we might walk in newness of life. And then this leads us to our next verb. We were committed and trusted to the gospel. We were set free from sin. And the next verb is, in verse 18, and having become slaves of righteousness. Again, the verb here is passive. Literally, it reads, you were enslaved to righteousness. That's the way one Bible translation translates it. So it's not so much that we gave ourselves over to be slaves as much as we were enslaved. Christ purchased us in order to transfer us from the slavery of sin to the slavery of another, to the slavery of righteousness, to the slavery of Christ. And all of this is the work of God. Entrusted to the gospel, set free and delivered from sin, enslaved to Christ, it is the work of God. Thanks be to God. That's why Paul says, thanks be to God, right? Because it's the work of the Lord. Thanks be to God that you became obedient from your heart to the gospel. Fifth and finally, spiritual slavery and freedom. Spiritual slavery and freedom. Look there in verse 19. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. 
Now, chapter 6 actually divides up into two major sections, and you may have already kind of sensed this, but verses 1 through 14 is the first section, and then now as we get into verse 15, we go to the end to the second section, so verses 15 to 23. And if you put the two beside each other, there are any number of interesting parallels. So, in verse 1, Paul opens with a question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And then, come down to verse 15, the second major section, he opens with a question. Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? Now, in the first section, Paul answers that question in verse 2 by saying, By no means. And if you come down in verse 15, he answers the same way. Verse 15, by no means. If you look at the first section, you'll also notice that Paul goes on in verses 2 through 10 to answer his initial question by reminding the Christians of who they are. He reminds them of their baptism. He reminds them of their union with Christ. Then he follows that in verses 11 through 14 with imperatives. Given who you are, now do these things. And you see them there in verses 11 through 14. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness, but present your members as instruments for righteousness. So the imperative in the first section flows out of the indicative, who they are, what is true about them. And now we see the same exact thing in this second section. Opens with a question, by no means, then the indicative. He tells them who they are. That's what we've been looking at, right? In verses 16 through 18, he tells them that they've been set free, that they've become slaves of righteousness. And then out of that, out of the indicative, he gives them an imperative. And that's what we just read here in verse 19. And actually, it's the same language, this imperative, these commands. He uses the same language as he did in verses 11 through 14. Look there. Just as you once presented your members. That's the same thing he said in verses 11 through 14. Just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity. So now present your members as slaves of righteousness leading to sanctification. So here we see again in this second major section in Romans chapter 6, this fundamental principle in the work of sanctification. This fundamental principle in becoming more like Christ. The fundamental principle is this. you got to know who you are. And then it's out of that that you act and you become who you are. So you must know who you are in Christ. And then armed with that knowledge... You must set out by faith to become who you are. I mentioned this last week in the sermon that sometimes we can become so aware of the doctrine of total depravity that in our natural state we are morally corrupt and unable to please God that we overlook or neglect what the Bible has to say about the radical transformation that takes place in our lives through union with Christ. So Romans chapter 3, of course, is where Paul talks about total depravity. 
None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. No one does good. No, not one. My friends, as I said last week, that's not who we are. If you are in Christ, that no longer describes who you are. In Romans chapter 6, Paul clearly declares, sin will have no dominion over you. This is our new reality in Christ. We're no longer in Romans chapter 3, but we are in Romans chapter 6. And I love, as we considered this last week from the first section of Romans chapter 6, I love how Paul puts this in the second section of Romans chapter 6. Look there in verse 16. He says to the Christians, right, in Rome, he says, you once were slaves of sin. In other words, he's saying to the Christians in Rome, you're not in Romans chapter 3. You were once there, you're not there anymore. You were once slaves of sin, but you aren't anymore. Paul says, you got to know this. Look at verse 18. You have been set free from sin. You were in bondage to sin in Romans 3, but you've become slaves of righteousness. You're in Romans 6. Verse 19, you once, in Romans 3, presented your members as slaves to impurity. Don't do that anymore, because now you're in Romans 6. This is our new reality. This is who you are in Christ. And out of this reality, Paul declares, present your members as slaves of righteousness. Sin really is slavery, but the world tells us and tries to convince us that it's freedom. This was the lie that Satan gave to Eve in the garden, right? Take of the fruit and you'll be just like God. You'll be free. James Boyce actually illustrates this truth really well. He speaks about a situation where years ago, Some Christians in Hong Kong had the opportunity to interview an 82-year-old woman who had come out of China. She was a believer, uh, but her vocabulary was filled with the terminology of communism because that is all she had known for decades. And the interviewer asked her, when you were back in China, were you free to gather together with other Christians to worship? And she answered, oh no, Since the liberation, no one is permitted to gather together for Christian services. They asked her again, But surely you were able to get together in small groups to discuss the Christian faith, they continued. She said, No, we were not. Since the liberation, all such meetings are forbidden. They asked her again, Were you free to read your Bible? She responded, Since the liberation, no one is free to read the Bible. Liberation, liberation, liberation. That's the vocabulary they used, right? It was n- there was no liberation, right? Only oppression and tyranny. And it's the same with sin. It promises freedom. And what it calls liberation is slavery, bondage, tyranny, oppression. Anger tells us, That true freedom is the ability to lash out at others and rage at people with hurtful words. 
Lust tells us that true freedom is the ability to think and dwell on whatever we desire. Greed tells us that true freedom is the ability to make more and more and more money and spend it all on ourselves. And it's all a lie. And once you've been freed from sin, you should walk in the freedom and joy that is now yours as a servant and slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because true freedom is not the ability for us to do whatever we want. True freedom is the ability to obey God. That is true freedom. Debt can be a form of slavery, can it? In Proverbs chapter 22, verse 7, author of Proverbs says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave of the lender. Now, can you imagine if you were to pay off your car, but you continued to make payments to your lender? You imagine if you finally finished paying off your student loans, but you decided you're going to still send in the check every month. Some people spend their whole lives, right, trying to pay off their home mortgage. It's like a, the goal that they set, right? Financial goal, the biggest financial goal they set for their lives. Can you imagine making your final mortgage payment, but you decide to keep sending in the check every month? My friends, here's the reality. We've been set free from sin and sometimes we need to grab ourselves and remind ourselves, I'm no longer a slave to sin and I will not pay the dues anymore. But by the grace of God, I will serve a new master, the Lord Jesus. And I will walk by faith in the freedom and in the joy of being a slave of Christ. This is what Paul is calling us to in Romans chapter 6. And by the grace of God, it can be ours. Not a life of perfection, but a life of genuine victory and progress in our pursuit to know Christ and to follow Him. Let's pray. Father, as we consider your word, we're reminded of just how little we know and appreciate the great hope that we have in Christ. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us for wandering around in old patterns and putting on old chains and living in old bondage. Lord, we pray that you would enable us by your grace to know who we truly are in Christ. And we pray that by the power of your spirit, that we would, in fact, walk in newness of life. Lord, even as we begin this morning, even now, Lord, I pray that you would be doing a work of breaking the bondage, the tyranny, the oppression of sin. Lord, that you would be liberating lives to walk, to walk in newness, to walk in freedom, to walk in joy. Father, I pray that for some of those who are here this morning who have never experienced life in Christ, maybe, maybe they have thought that they're free, but they're in bondage. Lord, I pray that you would open their eyes, that they might see their need for Christ. 
I pray that through faith in him, through union with Christ, even now they would know true freedom, the freedom to trust in the Lord Jesus, the freedom to obey Christ and to know eternal life. We pray that you would do that work. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen.